You can join me in God's Word in Romans chapter 5 and 6. Romans chapter 5 and 6. There's always going to be those little slip-ups, and I think what my wife was prodding me to say is that Van and Christy are moving to another location. They're not rejecting us. And as I was preparing my thoughts, I was reminded back to the many years that Van and I had had together, and largely my expositional preaching has come from his instruction and discipleship of me. So we're going to miss you guys, but trust you won't be gone for long. So pray that it would be miserable for where they're going, and God will maybe bring them back. (laughs) Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, I'm going to pick up in verse 8, and we're going to read down through chapter 6 in the text that we're going to be at this morning. Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Father in heaven, would you guide and direct our hearts this morning as we have taken your word now Set it before our eyes. Would you anchor it deeply within our hearts and our souls, giving us understanding by your spirit and enabling us again by the strength and the power and the leading of your spirit to walk in the light of your word, to embrace so strongly the truth of your grace. And I pray that you would refresh us with a greater zeal for your gospel as we go out into a world that is in need of a savior. We see this all around us in our nation and the nations of this world in turmoil. What they need is Christ. What we need is Christ. So, Father, would you direct our hearts and minds in worship of you this morning so that we can see the glory of the cross of your Son, we can see the glory of your love for sinners, and we can see the power that is in divine grace. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, occasionally I come across things in the news that are tragic, but at the same time almost amusing. You've heard the old expression, don't come to a gunfight with a knife. In the news just this week, a man came into a store attempting to rob it with a hammer. And interestingly enough, he came, the store he came into was, guess what, a gun shop. <clears throat> and most, <laughs> most of the store... Uh, workers carry guns, and it didn't end well for him. It ended in tragedy. 
But I think there are times that we come to discussions in the Christian nature, in the gospel nature, in the Christian, sometimes with a hammer in our hand in an attempt to come to a gunfight. One of the things I appreciate about Paul, he comes prepared for a spiritual battle. And you can pick up on that in, this, in the tone of his letter here, especially as he uses certain expressions to let us know he's coming for a strong fight for the gospel. And one of the things that we're going to be examining today is grace and the misconception, I believe, that sometimes Christians have with regard to this subject of grace and what it means. Because very often we are willing to dabble with sin or compromise or minimize sin because we have grace. And we want to extend grace. Or others demand of us, give me grace, which means I don't really want you to deal with my sin as it deserves. There are times when I believe the church has a weak view of grace. Or maybe we view grace as a weak thing. Paul does not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is where I invite us to begin, in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What Paul is saying is, to the Gentile, or to the basic unsaved, unbelieving world, The cross, the gospel, Christianity may seem foolish, it may seem unnecessary, it might be irrelevant to them, and to some, the gospel is even offensive. Largely because they don't want their sin exposed or condemned, they certainly don't want to give sin up. And that's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, why do they not come to the light of the gospel? It's because they prefer their deeds of darkness. But on the other hand, Paul, you will note from this text, also observes to the Jew, the gospel is what? A stumbling block. It's foolishness to the world of Greeks or the Gentiles. But to the Jews in particular, it is a stumbling block. The means to the eternal kingdom was that they perceived their own righteousness in keeping the law of God and their inheritance, their lineage to Abraham. That's what secured their future. As they hear the gospel being preached, it completely undermines that false understanding of human merit or the works of men. In the preaching of the gospel, the Jews were hearing that their moral conduct could not provide eternal life as they had believed for generations. Rather, salvation was, and only of, grace. Something they were not entitled to be part of without faith alone in the work of Christ alone. The world is not entitled to the grace of God apart from faith alone in Christ alone. Paul ended Romans chapter 5 by reminding the Jews of the intent of the law from the beginning. They had held on to the law as their means of salvation. It was their ticket into heaven, into eternal life. And Paul again is preaching a gospel that entirely undermines that and said, no, the law cannot provide salvation because none of us can keep it. The law was not given for the reason of saving men. It was given, as Paul says in chapter 5, to expose man's sin for the wickedness that it is because man tends to look at sin as if it's like this. 
The law made sin like this. And Paul says grace came and it was even greater. It handled all the offensiveness of sin. And that shows grace in a very powerful, a strong, a forceful, and a commanding kind of language. It is here in chapter 6 that Paul addresses a potential complaint against the grace of God, the reign of grace that he just talked about in verse 21. It is here in chapter 6 that he presents this gospel of grace as something that is absolutely antithetical to sin. If the law was only meant to expose sin more fully and God's grace abounded all the much more, there were going to be those that were going to prefer or attack the gospel saying, well, Paul, all you're saying is that because of grace, you can continue to sin. That just makes grace look bigger. It makes God look more glorified. But you will notice the glory of God is seen in what way? Down verse 4 of chapter 6. It's in his son. It's in the work that his son did. It's not in what the law accomplishes in the hearts of men. All the law could do was to expose the wickedness in our hearts. But grace was stronger. That's the point Paul makes in chapter 5. Paul opens chapter 6 anticipating an objection from those that disagreed with, disapproved, or didn't feel they needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see in chapter 5, he assures the believers that we were once in Adam, but now by faith, we are in Christ and we're reigned by grace, but notice, through his righteousness. That's what we saw last week. Chapter 6 was written then to defend the work of God's grace in the lives of those who have, been, who have embraced the gospel, embraced it by faith. It explains to the Christian that in union with Christ, we as believers have gone from death, death in Adam, to now life, life in Christ. Because Paul has just taken the church into the deep theology of Adam's transgression, which brought all men into sin and death. He picks up with that subject of death again here in chapter 6 and shows what it means to live in Christ. So there is a focus in chapter 6 on the union of Christ, and I hope we see that this morning. To be justified by faith in the work of Christ and apart from the works of man. The believer is brought out of death in Adam and into life in Christ. Chapter 6 teaches us what it means to be brought out of death and into life. This chapter describes our union with Christ and what that looks like. Where grace reigns, so does righteousness of Christ. The reign of grace pictures then our union with Christ in this way. Verse 1 and 2 We're going to look at this issue of grace. What, first of all, does grace abolish? What grace abolishes? We see that, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There is a subject here that Paul's going to come head on in regard to this subject of grace or the reign of grace. Here in verse 1, the question follows the statements that Paul has just made in chapter 5, asking, what shall we say then? What shall we say to this that I've just said in the previous verses? Are we to continue in sin because grace is greater, grace abounded over sin? 
the Jews would likely be the ones to challenge Paul on this issue of grace. They would challenge him on what he just said in verse 20. The law came not to save, but to cause sin to increase or to see sin for what it is. But then Paul had to say, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The Jews would have jumped on this. But I want you to know how in verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul frames the question. He's not talking to the Jew here. He says, what shall we say? Notice the pronoun. Are we to continue in sin? This lets us know that even the world, even maybe the Jewish or the religious people in the world, are going to look at the gospel. We know the complaint they're going to raise. So be prepared, Paul says. Paul has confronted this objection before. No doubt he's battled with the Jews before on this. So he's informing the church in Rome, be ready for this kind of gospel objection. The objection is about grace. The Jewish religion may press this logic upon the gospel church, but it's only the true believer that is under the reign of grace and therefore the only people that must address this in their walk of life. This is question, these are questions, plural, that we must answer as believers. How do we see grace? If the world looks and they object to the gospel and they debate us with the gospel, how are we going to defend grace here? Because we can anticipate the world of unbelievers challenging our faith on these points. But the true believer must have a clear understanding of grace as a response and as a way of life in our union with Christ. It's not just something, this gospel of grace is not just something that saves us. Grace is what we walk in. So first, let's look at how grace can be slandered. Um, by those that object to the gospel. How grace can be slandered. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that the cross is foolishness to the Gentile world. But in the minds of the Jews, the gospel would completely dismantle their religious belief system that they claimed belonged to them and that they had earned and that entitled them to eternal glory. The crucified Savior is then a stumbling block to them in what they believe. So when they hear Paul treat their religion, their law in this way, they protest with claims and debates that present a false view of the gospel, as do many even today, both Jew and Gentile. Grace is misrepresented today by unbeliever, Jew and Gentile. But I'm going to argue it's misrepresented in the church today as well. It's misrepresented by others who claim to be Christian. I think all of us have experienced people that have attempted or would love to discredit us because of some claim of disapproval to us. They maybe don't like us personally, they don't like what we did, what we represent, or how we minister. There may be jealousies, there could be any number of reasons, but people that disapprove us will sometimes discredit us. And one of the frustrating ways that they can discredit us is to take, some, take something we did or something we said, and twist it to be something different than we intended. And these can be difficult things for us to defend because there is an element of truth to it. We did something, 
or we said something, and they take that thing that we did do or did say, and they twist it into something it was not intended. This is a form of deception that has a measure of truth to it, but truth is twisted to give a false impression. It is deception, even though there's the handling of something that is true. What they did with our good is used against us to make us look bad or perhaps even to make them look better. And this is usually done by a person who wants to promote themselves as right, as righteous, or good. And if others who hear that false report are asking us, uh, did you do this? Did you actually say this? We'd have to say, well, yes, I did say that, or yes, I did do that, but that's not what I meant. You can see that it's difficult for us to defend ourselves of that kind of an approach. Unfortunately, when our truth is mishandled in this way, a seed of doubt is always going to be left in the minds of others. Well, what did they really mean? What was their intent? There are many variations of this kind of mishandling of our truth, but the purpose behind it, the purpose behind twisting our words and actions is to do damage to our character, our words, our actions, or our motives. The Bible calls this, can you think of a word? Slander. That's what scripture calls it. It is slander. Slander is condemned in scripture as speaking evil about the good of others. Now, there are two New Testament words in the Greek language for slander, and the one means simply slander. But the other word is where we get the word blaspheme, blasphemo. In the Greek, it is to blaspheme. And when we blaspheme someone, we are vilifying them or making them out to be evil, speaking evil of someone when it's not true or in a way that is not true. The hypothetical question that Paul opens with in chapter 6 is an example of mishandling the truth of God's saving grace for the purpose of condemning the gospel that he had been preaching. Paul knows this kind of slander is coming because he's faced it before. He anticipates this response from those who object to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. To be saved by God's grace as declared in the gospel means that salvation is all about the work that Christ accomplished for sinners and not by any merit or contribution from sinners. It's all of grace. And in Paul's gospel preaching ministry, he makes clear in this letter, very often having to deal with the Jews that objected to his message, how it reflected on their view of the law of Moses, their lineage to Abraham. The gospel didn't make them look good because they're rejecting justification by faith alone. And we've discussed this at some length in making our way through the first five chapters of this letter. And this culminated with Paul having to clarify, why did God give the law? Chapter 5, verse 20, why did God give the law? It was not intended, again, for the means of salvation. It was intended to direct sinners to God's salvation. And therefore, in chapter 5, verse 20, he says the law came in so that the transgression would be made more clear, more obvious, and it would be seen not in man's eye, but this is how God sees our sin. It's much bigger, it's much more offensive, far more wicked. But don't worry, Paul says, because the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ abounds all the more. Even as awful as sin is, grace takes care of it. 
And as we discussed last week, Paul's meaning was that the law clarified the wickedness of man's sin. It expanded our understanding of its offensiveness to God. But where the sinner understands how awful, how offensive our sin is to God, God's grace to save us and cleanse us of sin abounds all the more. The grace of the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient. It takes care of it all. That's the point Paul makes here. Paul then goes on to write that the reign of God's grace is through his what? Righteousness. In other words, grace does not ignore sin. It takes the believer out from under the reign of death that is marked by sin. It places them in the reign of grace that is now marked by God's righteousness, as we read in verse 21 of chapter 5. But the person who objects to the gospel of grace stops Paul in verse 20 and says, Ah, Paul, I know what you're saying here. God will look better if we look worse. God will be glorified all the more if we sin all the more. So, continue sin. That is grace slander. That is gospel blasphemy. And you can see that it hits Paul that way. Look at verse 2. May it never be. Paul is prepared to strongly defend this grace of God. This is a twisting of the truth of God's saving grace, and Paul has to address it now as he sets the record straight. The grace of the gospel does not save men by their own righteousness, but it saves them to walk in God's righteousness. Knowing this is how grace is going to be twisted, the question in verse 1 is put to believers. Are we to see grace in this way? Are we to live grace this way? Sadly, the deception does not stop with those who object to the cross of Christ. And this is where the dogmatic response of Paul is stressed here. In our culture today, it is often propagated by those who claim to embrace the gospel, but who want to live in a so-called Christian liberty, where they're free to indulge in the appetites of the flesh. Christian liberty is a reality that is taught in the New Testament, but does not at all give license to any believer to follow after their sinful appetites. The theological expression for this false view of grace is antinomianism. Anti meaning against, and namos is the Greek word for law, against the law of God. Grace is not against the law of God. Far too many professing Christians and Christian churches are really pressing the lines of righteousness into the dark territories of the world and all in the name of what? Our freedom in Christ. The sixth chapter of this letter in Romans deals with this slanderous view of grace and he deals with it head on. And there can be no mistaking Paul's position on the subject. He responds, verse 2, very dogmatically, may it never be. Now, dogmatism itself is something that some Christians don't appreciate either. But this is Paul's dogmatic response to the slanderous view of grace. Paul makes use of this expression, may it never be, at least ten times in this letter. In other words... Paul was a dogmatic man. He was dogmatic. And we live in a culture that kind of pushes back 
at dogmatism. And it is true that there are certain doctrines that we might be able to disagree on and debate. But the attitude of our day is don't make a big deal about doctrine. Let's, let's not get into the do's and don'ts of Christian living. Let's just love Jesus. Let's just love each other. We just need more grace. That's usually the cap there. We just need more grace. As if grace ignores or minimizes sin. Where did this language, where did this misrepresentation of grace come from? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So doctrine, the do's and don'ts of righteousness are important to Christ. The word that Paul uses to dogmatically express the Christian's answer to the question in verse 1, or the questions in verse 1, is a very strong, it's a very expressive response, meaning this is absolutely unthinkable. Let it not even come into our minds. The King James Version, God forbid. The reason for this powerful response is that this thought about grace is blasphemous. In Paul's mind, this is slandering grace. While grace abounds where sin has increased, the one who tampers with grace has ignored verse 21 of chapter 5. They've stopped at verse 20, but they've ignored verse 21. God's grace reigns through righteousness, not through ongoing sin. Grace isn't going to reign through continuing in sin. We note also that Paul is not referring to the occasional sin that all believers will struggle with in this life. Rather, in verse 1, he writes, shall we continue in sin? This is the habitual pattern of sin that we lived in when we were in Adam. We lived in sin not caring about confession, not caring about offending God, not caring about repentance, not caring about walking in a righteousness that isn't my own. Left to ourselves, we're going to have all our own individual thoughts of what's good and bad. God standardizes that and says, it only matters what I think is good. It doesn't matter what you think is good. Only my righteousness. Only my view of sin. Paul here means that the pattern and habit of sinning that we once knew in Adam cannot continue to be how we live in our union with Christ. And therefore, we dare not slander God's grace. All of us should be saying, may it never be, to verse 1. The American theologian, Charles Hodge, made this clear in just this one sentence. Union with Christ, being the only source of holiness, or we could say the only source of righteousness, cannot be the source of sin. Christ, our union with Christ, It is the only source of righteousness, but it cannot be the source of sin. Hodge adds that to think of our union with Christ as a life of continuing sin is such a contradiction in terms, it's like saying a live dead man or a good bad one. Paul addresses the absurdity of this thought, asking in verse 2 this question for Christians. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How well we who died to sin still live in it. That means that the true believer has experienced something. And this becomes a theme in chapter 6. We have died to sin. We've died to sin. The moment we came to faith. So Paul's going to take the remainder of chapter 6 to answer this fundamental question. It's really asking, do sin and grace belong together? 
Can they exist together? Can they work together? Can they complement each other as verse 1 implies? And Paul's answer, may it never be, which means may it never be true in our thinking of grace, may it never be true in our practice of grace, may it never be true in our testimony of grace that we live or communicate before the world. We not only believe grace, we live grace. And this brings us to the idea that the gospel was being softened here. We want a gentle gospel, an easy gospel. Why this dramatic response by Paul to a grace that is slandered? Well, several truths come out in chapter 6 and throughout the book of Romans that it's good for us to briefly consider right here. Our culture has softened the gospel in what it demands and accomplishes. Jesus told us, count the cost. Count the cost. And we learn from Romans that the gospel is not to be softened. We don't want to soften the cost. More grace, less law, minimizing sin, all sounds nice. But is it a softening of the gospel that we're seeing today? Just note some of the truths about the gospel that we know of from the book of Romans. First, the purpose of the gospel is not merely to save sinners from the penalty or the eternal consequences of sin. Right here in chapter 6, Paul's going to say that the gospel of grace set us free from the bondage of sin. It's not just the consequences of sin. We are set free from the bondage or slavery to sin. Therefore, grace is entirely inconsistent with continuing to sin. Second, for us to presume we are free to dabble in sin or compromise with sin or minimize our sin ignores how much gospel instruction is given to the church in the New Testament as to how we are to live as a people of grace. Grace does not mean going soft on sin. Grace does not encourage us to minimize or ignore sin's presence, not in ourselves and not in the church not in other believers. We are commanded, we are instructed, we are taught doctrines and principles repeatedly throughout God's word to walk no longer in sin, walk in righteousness. This is exactly what Paul means in chapter 5, verse 21. By the reign of grace, through righteousness, the believers are now brought under. And we see this exemplified in chapters like chapter 12 of Romans. And third, grace that allows us to continue in sin really denies the drama of the cross. The most obvious revelation of God's grace for sinners is seen in the violence, the torment, and the shame of what God demanded of his own son to bear the burden of sin for us and to set us free from sin's grip on us. Verse 521 ends by reminding us that eternal life has come to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. You back up in chapter 5. God's demonstration of his love for us was that Jesus died for us, died for our sins. And Christ dying for sins is the theme that we see in Romans 5 and Romans 6. What Paul implies here is that forgiveness of sins had a terrible cost to it. Now, we would all affirm that God is a forgiving God, right? And one of the passages that I love to remind myself of about God is Psalm 86, verse 5. 
And in that psalm, or in that passage, it says, For you, O Lord, are good and you're ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. That reminds us that God is always poised to forgive. But he does not forgive the world, does he? Not until they put their faith in Christ, repenting of their sins before him, that God will turn and forgive. So to assume that God looks at sinners and says, well, they're doing the best they can. Oh, that was kind of a minor offense. Not a big deal with me. It's not to judge the cross properly. What did it take to cleanse us of our sins? The law told us that our sin is not this big. To God, it is huge. What did it take for God to forgive? We can say, yes, God's a forgiving God. But that doesn't mean God just said, well, I see they're trying their best. I'll just forgive them. Our forgiveness came at a terrible cost. God, to forgive us, required of his son that he would set aside his heavenly glories. He would take on a body of flesh and come live among us. And that son would be rejected. He'd be falsely accused. He would be abandoned by all, beaten and nailed to a cross to atone for the sins of his people. But even that was not enough to permit God to forgive us. God had to turn his wrath, his anger, his judgment against his own son on account of our sins. So the sins of God's people were placed on his son and God turned his wrath against his son. God then required that his son willingly surrender his life over to the grave, experiencing the death that we deserved in order to make full payment for our sins. God did not simply ignore our sins. For him to forgive, the bloody, the violent sacrifice of his son must be surrendered. Suffering and death had to take place if sins are to be, sinners are to be delivered from their sin, delivered from its condemnation, and delivered from its bondage. If the cross teaches us anything about God's grace, is that where sinners come under the reign of grace, sin must decrease, not increase. What does more sin look like in a Christian? If we continue in sin as a people of grace, what does it look like to the world around us? What comes from a believer who slanders grace with the way in which he lives? Is he minimizes sin? If he diminishes sin? If he ignores sin? Or continues in the patterns of sin that he knew before he came to faith in Christ? In Donald Gray Barnhouse's commentary on Romans, he quoted an unnamed source with this expression. He writes, It is a lamentable fact that one man who dishonors the gospel by an unholy walk does more injury to the souls of men than ten holy men can do them good. And I think we've all seen this at times. We can get into a group of people that are very good with each other, very godly, very Christ-like, very biblical, and it's an encouragement to us. But you plant one person in there that is anti-grace and is supportive of sin, and you can do more damage to those souls, this writer is pointing out, than the ten were doing them good. Paul's question in verse 2 is really a statement that all believers should read this way. Since we have died to sin, we cannot continue to live in that habit. 
He then takes the rest of this chapter, chapter 6, to explain, beginning with what grace accomplishes in verse 3, 4, and 5. For true believers, the reign of grace abolishes the reign of sin in our present life. We have died to sin. And this declaration is going to be repeated several times throughout this particular chapter. James Montgomery Boyce made an interesting observation of this idea of sin and grace that continues to be propagated falsely in the Christian community today. He said, I would, and this won't come up on the board, I would go so far as to say that Romans 6 verse 2 is the most important verse in the Bible for believers in evangelical churches to understand today. Why do you suppose he says that? The most important verse in verse 2, chapter 6, is because he can look across the climate of Christianity in, in America And what do we see? Compromise, minimize, fleshly living, indulging in what the world indulges in and calling it okay because we have Christian liberty. That is not the view of grace that we should be giving to the world. So this brings us to verse 3, 4, and 5. Paul opens up the drama for us, if you will, of grace and its relationship to sin. They really have no partnership here. So moving to verse 3, 4, and 5, Paul shows us what grace accomplishes. We see from verse 1 and 2 what grace abolishes, this continuing pattern of sin. That can't be part of living grace. But now he says, I want you to see what grace accomplishes. This is how it looks in the life of believers. He describes here what is meant by being dead to sin and living no longer in it. This is our union with Christ. These verses continue to question the believer that may be grappling with the thoughts or the questions of verse 1 or thinking they can live carelessly in sin as a person that claims to be under grace. And we can dismiss this, not with words at times, but in our own thinking, I can get by with this, I'm under grace. The cross covers Verse 3 opens up, don't you know? Do you not know? In other words, these truths of Christian living are things that we must understand. We got to believe it, we got to embrace it, and we got to live it. To secure this knowledge in our minds, Paul describes the believer's union with Christ in a very vivid picture of the Lord's crucifixion. This is a passage, verse 3, 4, and 5 that I talk to all those that come and want to be baptized, and for obvious reasons. But bear in mind, Paul is not teaching baptism here. He's merely using the word because it paints a picture for us to see. The picture that Paul uses to describe how we have been united into Christ is associated with baptism. And again, it's a Greek word, baptizmo. And it means to fully immerse, to whelm, overwhelm, to make fully wet. What he wants us to see in these verses is this is our union with Christ. And I would point out, with no sarcasm intended, we're not sprinkled with Christ. We're fully immersed. We're dunked under, completely immersed into Christ. Paul is, again, not writing about baptism, but it cannot escape our notice that he uses the language of that ordinance of the church. The word itself and even the description of the ritual makes a graphic lesson for us on how we are to see ourselves in Christ, united with Christ. And with this in mind, Paul uses the word baptism because in the Greek it means to to whelm, to make fully wet or to immerse. 
Paul teaches here, again, is not necessarily a, a defense of believer's baptism over infant baptism. That's not the point here. But you cannot help but see what that picture of baptism declares about our union with Christ. And so when somebody wants to be baptized here, I'm going to talk to him about this passage. Because getting into the waters of baptism as a declaration before the whole church and others that come is really a declaration of that believer's union with Christ. I have been fully immersed into Christ by faith. That has to mean something to us. So Paul uses a word that shows that when a sinner comes to faith in the gospel, they're not simply moistened a little bit with Jesus. They're fully immersed into him spiritually. And this full immersion has meaning for us when it comes to the matter of sin and death. Now, our baptism, the ordinance of it, requires immersing in water. And water is always used or frequently used in Scripture to speak about cleansing and the cleansing away of sin. So when we baptize, that image of water going into water gives us the, the view that Christ has washed away. He's cleansed sin away. So we must be joined to him by faith. Every Christian reading Paul's letter here would have understood what Paul's driving home. I know what you're saying, Paul. I came to faith in Christ. And yeah, I was baptized. I get the significance here. Verse 3 is asking a believer or this question. But it's really more of a statement. A statement the believers must know. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Do you not know this? In other words, You've been baptized into Christ. What does he mean? You have been fully immersed into Christ. There's a spiritual union here that connects all believers, not only with Jesus, notice, but with all other believers. We have all, all of us as believers, been baptized into Christ. In other words, you and I as believers are joined together, and together we're fully immersed into Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 for just a moment. I am going to use a couple of verses, and they're in your note sheet. But they used, are used again by Paul, this word baptized, by Paul, used again to describe not the ritual or the ordinance of baptism, but about our, it's describing our union with Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 is one such passage speaking about this union. For by one spirit, we were all baptized or immersed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free. And we are all made to drink of one spirit. Again, the word baptism is describing our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. And notice it is first a work of the Holy Spirit, meaning we cannot cause this union to take place. When we come to faith in Christ, we don't then say, well, I better go unite myself with Christ. We can't do that. We have no ability or power to spiritually immerse ourselves fully into Christ, but the Spirit of God does. This is a work of the Spirit of God that he unites us together in this deep and full way, and not only uniting us with Christ, but uniting us together with other believers in Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, the many made one, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. This unifying work, again, is the Spirit of Christ. 
He's doing this. He's fully, not partially, fully immersing us, baptizing into Christ. And we are fully indwelt. We have been made to drink of that one spirit. Paul is talking about the indwelling presence of the spirit. And again, I can't do that. I can't make the spirit come in me. But the spirit can. I've been made to drink of that by his work. The moment I came to faith, baptized into one body, we were made one with each other at the same time being made one with Christ. He's the, he's the head. And together, you and I as believers, we make up the body. Because this union is a work of the Holy Spirit, we can well understand why the unity of the church is so important to Christ. In fact, if you go back to Titus chapter 3, there's a little disciplinary matter that Paul wants to take care of in Titus 3. He says, verse 10, 11, reject a factious or divisive man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. This is a form of church discipline, and why do we do it? It's not because we're being mean, and to throw somebody out of the church seems like it's divisive in itself. But Paul is saying, don't leave a divisive person in there that is going to run amok the unity that the Spirit of God has created. If there's a divisive person, you warn them once, you warn them a second time. If they don't respond, remove them from the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church in Corinth was scolded for not removing a man that was walking in habitual sin. And this may seem, again, like action that's not unifying, but in truth, it is sin that divides. And where that sin is habitual and is not confessed and repented of, Paul says it's going to act like a little bit of leaven in the dough, and it's going to spread quickly. And you'll end up with a broken, divided body where the Spirit of God has said, I've made you one. I've immersed you into Christ. So the church is to be very protective of its unity. And we're to be reminded sin is the thing that fractures us. It tears us apart. And this is the point being made by Paul in Romans chapter 6. The grace of God does not allow sin to continue. Our unity in Christ is the reigning of God's grace where his righteousness is actively at work. Sin must not continue in us because it destroys the unity of Christ's body, our unity with one another and our oneness with Christ himself. Second part of this, Paul is going to emphasize being buried and raised with Christ. This is part of our union with Christ. So going back to Romans chapter 6, verse 3. <clears throat> Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? We are to know this. There's a thing about buried, being buried with Christ and being raised with Christ. And again, the analogy of baptism or the ordinance of baptism is carried further to show that being immersed with Christ means that we have been immersed in his death and were raised to life with him as well. So picture what happens when we baptize somebody back in that pool of water behind me. When we take them down underwater, we're baptizing them as, Matthew 28 says, a disciple of Christ. It is somebody that has come to faith in Christ. They've been made a disciple by faith in Christ. What are we commanded to do with such a person? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We put them under the water and we bring them up. What Paul is saying here is that that is representative of what Christ did when he took our sins, died, was buried in a grave, and was raised again, victorious over sin, death, and judgment. 
But the moment I came to faith, I was united. I was immersed into Christ so that I died with Christ. As he died with my sin, I came to faith and now I die with Christ to sin. And I'm raised up again in newness of life as Paul describes here in Romans 6. We are buried, we are raised with Christ. And so to use that picture of baptism gives us a vivid representation of what baptism is declaring to all of us who are watching. That person is saying, I've died with Christ. I've confessed him. I put my faith in him. He's my savior. He carried my sin when he died on the cross and was buried in a grave. I now put my faith in him. And that baptism represents that picture of our union with him. I've died to sin, but I've been raised to Christ. The spiritual identity is pictured as the professing believer is fully immersed in water. The water, again, representing the cleansing or the washing away of sin, which comes by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. We don't get saved. We don't get sin cleansed away by being baptized. Baptism only represents something. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us a vivid picture of what that baptism is declaring in our full immersion into Christ. And here's a person that was once a sinner in Adam. They now in Christ have died to sin because he died with my sin. He died for my sin. And he was raised up in glory. So we are raised up in newness of Christ. And now that individual is under the reign of grace to walk in righteousness before the Lord God. That's what being raised up in newness of life describes. And that's where Paul goes next with that likeness. Verse 4 and 5. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the righteousness of grace. Should we continue in sin so that grace can abound? Paul said, may it never be. That's not what grace does. Grace doesn't save us and leave us in our sin. It raises us up in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, and he's already explained that to us. The picture of baptism has shown that. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is a believer that is now walking in newness of life, and they're emulating They're in the likeness of the Savior who is raised in glory. And you and I, the moment we come to faith, we die to the old person of sin and we're raised up in the likeness of Christ. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? You see the power of the question that he throws at us? Once we envision, once we know and understand our union in this way, how can we possibly continue to walk in sin or to treat sin like we once did in Adam? Jesus went to the cross without sin. But in the hours that he hung there, the sin of his people were placed on him to bear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ because we're united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Our sins are atoned for. We're raised with Christ to walk in this newness of life. And this begins the moment we come to faith in Christ. What do we mean then by this newness of life? Because I still sin. But I'm not sinning the same way that I did when I was in Adam. Now my sin is fully dealt with. 
by the blood of Christ. Now I confess and I repent. Now I know what sin is because I submit to the law of God. Now I stand forgiven. I stand cleansed. Now I obey. I grow. I walk in righteousness because I am enabled by the spirit of Christ that is indwelling me to do so. It's different now. Yes, we occasionally sin. Maybe sometimes more than occasionally. But it is different now because the blood of Christ covers every sin. I'm enabled by the spirit of Christ to walk in righteousness. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. Look at these two passages with me. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Paul, again, notice, makes use of baptism as language in this analogy of our union with Christ. He writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, or again, fully immersed into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, wearing his righteousness. Grace is reigning now in our life through righteousness. But Paul makes clear in Philippians chapter 3, it's not a righteousness of my own. I lived on those terms before when I was in Adam. This is not a righteousness that is my own. It's a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Again, we talk imputed righteousness. And it's not merely a theoretical righteousness that shields me from being seen by God in the nakedness of my sin. Imputed righteousness is an activity of God in my life, as well as a covering. He's doing a work of righteousness. It has no room for sin. When believers are water baptized before us, they are declaring they've already been baptized into the Lord's death and resurrection. That baptism, that ordinance, doesn't save us. It doesn't wash away sin. It's a declaration that we've already been baptized into Christ, saved by Christ, forgiven by Christ. My sins are already atoned for. I'm just giving a public demonstration of that in obedience to Christ. The physical act of baptism then is a graphic picture of being fully immersed into Christ. It's why we dunk them completely under. It's why in the biblical baptism, they're looking for bodies of water. John the Baptist, he's by the Jordan River. He's not taking out his canteen and sprinkling something. He's fully immersing to give us the picture and the understanding that when we come to faith in Christ, we are fully immersed in Christ. His spirit indwells us inwardly. We are his. And how can we possibly die to sin and continue to walk in it? What a believer is to know about sin and grace, and this is kind of my wrap-up this morning, is the subject of Romans chapter 6 what we're to know about sin and grace. What is prevalent in our present culture, I believe, is a diminishing of God's law on account of a wrong view of grace, especially in our practice of grace. Those under the reign of God's saving grace have died to sin. Not only that, but they have been raised up to walk in likeness of the resurrected Savior, in the righteousness of the Savior. And these are some conclusions that we can take from our text. I'm just going to give you some words, and you can jot down what this word should mean to you now that we've looked at this graphic and marvelous picture of what it means to be united with Christ. First, profession. Consider your profession of faith. Your profession of faith. A profession of faith that continues in sin as it was in Adam is a false profession. 
Paul goes into greater detail on this matter in future chapters. But in chapter 8 of Romans, it's particularly clear where he says in verse 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. They have to be fully immersed in Christ, indwelt by the spirit of Christ. And then verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit, those are the sons of God. Do you think sin matters in that picture? Do you think walking in righteousness matters in that? Our profession of faith can't merely be, oh, yes, I'm a Christian because I think the cross is a good thing. We must be united with him by the Holy Spirit, and I recognize I can't do that kind of union. But I can put my faith and trust in Christ. I can see Christ for who he is. I can see my sin for what it is. And I can cast myself entirely on him that I might be whelmed fully immersed into Christ, dying to the old person of sin and being raised in newness of life. Make sure your profession of faith. Second, consider your portrayal. How do you portray Christ? How do I portray Christ in my daily walk of faith? Because when we sin, it's important to know, when we sin, we portray Christ in our likeness. That's entirely antithetical to what's Paul teaching here. When we sin, we portray Christ to the church, to the world around us, portray Christ in my likeness. That's the direct opposite of what Romans 6 teaches about those living under the reign of God's grace by faith. And Paul's point is that true believers cannot continue, meaning habitual sin has got to end. It has ended. But we also know that we sin occasionally. And times, again, more than occasionally. It is good to be reminded, even with occasional sin, it should not be minimized. Because every time we do sin, we are portraying Christ in our own likeness to those around us, rather than walking in the likeness that others may see Christ in me. It makes us mindful of every sin. We don't minimize it. We don't ignore it. We don't downplay it. We shouldn't even be joking about it. We should be confessing it and knowing that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What the world, what the church needs to see in us is Christ, not ourselves. It reminds me of uh, years ago when I took uh, a college class on the Greek language. The professor talked about the word baptize. And it was frequently used in Christ's time, in the apostles' time, the early church time, to speak of a vat of dye. And they would take a plain old piece of cloth and they'd submerge it completely into that dye and leave it there for several days. And when it came up, it came up brilliant red or purple was a very expensive color at the time. It gives you kind of a graphic picture of what it means for a Christian to be baptized into Christ. Because we have the sinful person in Adam that gets immersed into the vat of Christ. And we come up what color? Christ. That's the color we should come up. How do we portray Christ? And third, I want us to consider our passion. Dying to sin and walking in newness of life requires a newness in our passions as well. It's not just our practice. What fuels us to practice the way that we do, to act the way they do? In Adam, we were born with an appetite for sin. 
In Christ, we're given a new appetite for his righteousness. And again, this is a work of the Holy Spirit, but we have got to also cultivate that passion within us because this is associated with our sanctification, our progressive growth in Christ. We can be prone, I think, to laziness in spiritual matters and to walking in newness of life and in the likeness of Christ because this is going to require effort on our part. If we have died to Christ, or died to sin because of Christ, and raised up in the likeness of Christ as a work of the Holy Spirit, as we continue on in this life, do we not want to cooperate with the Spirit and grow in these things? And it really gets to the matter of the heart. We can change outward morality, but even the Pharisees cleaned up the outside of the cup pretty well. But what matters to my heart? If I'm going to walk in righteousness, the likeness of Christ, and newness of life, I've got a hunger and desire for those things, and it's going to take work on our part. This kind of our sanctifi- part of our sanctification will require effort. We cultivate a passion for Christ by being in his word, learning more about Christ, meditating on his word, being around the people of Christ. We did not invent the church, did we? It's Christ's work. Why did he, why did he create this thing? Why is he building his church? Because in our walk of faith, we need each other. It's not an option. We need each other and the gifts that the Spirit gives to every believer so that we minister to one another. We have to cultivate a passion for Christ, being in his word, being around his people, speaking to him in prayer. That's why it says pray without ceasing. We're continually communing, talking with the Lord. And also, the more we emulate his likeness, the more we walk in his righteousness, the more we're going to enjoy and love that. If we hardly ever do it, we won't build a passion for it. But the more we do, the more we walk with the Savior, the more we're going to enjoy that, the more that we're going to be blessed by that, and the more that we're going to want more of that. Father in heaven, The picture that you've given to us of our union with your son in Romans 6 is a magnificent testimony of your grace. And because we are supposed to know these things, I pray that we will learn them by your grace. We'll absorb them. And Father, we'll continue to walk in the likeness of your son because we know grace. Teach us grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.